Hey, this is Pastor Jesse of City Lights Church, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We hope that it inspires you and confirms the fact that the kingdom of God is a present reality in our lives that you get to live out. You get to be God's ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. That's exciting news. We also hope that our messages challenge your identity to help you understand who you really are in Christ. I hope that you're blessed by this message today. This morning, I want to ask us as we jump into our word, uh, what is in our worship? What, what's in your worship? I want to encourage you while you're at home, uh, go ahead and pull out a Bible if you have one. If you're on your smart device uh, watching this, you won't be able to pull out a Bible but I, I, um, on your phone, but I would, <laughs> I would encourage you to grab a real Bible if you have one um, and just jump with me to Psalm 113. Uh, the question I was asking is what's in our worship? What, what are we saying? What are we singing in our worship? Um, I asked Eric to sing that song because it's one that we love. It's super popular in these last few years. Um, it's got a crazy backstory uh, of how it was written in a hospital room over a boy who was dying. And God did a miraculous work in that kid's life, and, and he's healthy now. Uh, it's a really great song. It's a powerful song. It's got a great story. But, but when we sing and worship, what are we saying? What's in our worship? Um, and maybe not even just what's in our worship when we sing, but what's in our worship when we do an act of worship, whether you serve in some ministry capacity or you're generous to the poor or you're doing all things to the Lord. Um, what, what's in the worship? What's kind of hidden inside of that? What's the message in your heart? Um, what's the message of the words that we sing? And so like that song is called, I Raise a Hallelujah, but, but what does that mean? I mean, have you thought about that word? If you've grown up in church, you probably have an idea of what hallelujah means. You've probably been told uh, what, what that expression is saying. But for many people, we're singing this song, but we don't really think about, I raise a hallelujah. What are we, what are we actually saying? This morning, uh, as we look at Psalm 113, I think we have an answer for you there. Um, my hope this morning is that scripture by the Holy Spirit uh, would come alive to you in a new way. I think the Lord's shown me some things that are really cool about this, this psalm specifically. This is a psalm that uh, Ben and I have mentioned over the last few weeks that we're going through these psalms right now, but we're also partnering with um, a global liturgy. Churches all over the world read from specific songs, psalms on specific mornings, and this is one that thousands of churches are reading today, Psalm 113. So what's in it? What are we saying when we read this? What are we saying when we sing things like I read? Raise a hallelujah. What are, we, what are we actually trying to express? And so I think there's answers for you in this. So let's read a few verses here together and then we'll, we'll just stop for a minute. It says this, Psalm 113, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. I want to pause there for a second. That first line where we see in our English translations, praise the Lord, it's actually one word in the Hebrew. And that word is hallelujah. So when we sing, I raise a hallelujah, we're singing, I raise a praise the Lord. The word praise in Hebrew is hallel. This psalm starts off 
from 113 to 118, what's called the Hallel Psalms. These are songs that Israel would sing before Passover. They would sing these psalms uh, in celebration, in acts of worship. They would, these aren't just something, some poem written, kind of like Ben's sermon last week by an uh, upset Ethan trying to figure out life, and he's a little disgruntled. These are songs of worship. These are praise psalms. And so we see that word Hallel, praise, Hallelujah, the sacred name that God gave Israel to reveal himself was Yahweh. So Hallelujah is a shortened version of Yahweh. So it's praise the name of God, praise Yahweh, sing to him, declare his goodness. And actually, if you look at those verses, we see praise Hallel, Yahweh, Hallelujah, praise the servants of Yahweh, praise the name of Yahweh, blessed be the name of Yahweh. And then at the end of verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of Yahweh is to be praised. It's this declaration of giving worship and honor to God's name, to who he is, to how he has revealed himself to us. Uh, We see that Yahweh is used five times in these three verses alone. Today, when that passage is sung by by Israel, by people uh, who sing in the Hebrew, they they revere that name so much that they won't actually say Yahweh. They'll say Adonai, meaning Lord. And that's where we get our translation Lord, because Adonai means that. Or sometimes they'll say Jehovah. They'll say other names to fill in that because they don't want to blaspheme God's name. It's so sacred. It's so special that they'll put in a substitute when they say it together. But here in the Psalms, it's actually written and it was sung. It was declared in David's time. They knew that it was a special thing that they were marked by. Today, uh, names don't really matter that much. Uh, people don't think about names too much. You don't, you don't think that your name is a marker of your character, of, of a, rele- a revelation of who you are, or something sacred that you don't give out. You don't want too many people to know your name. Uh, I was watching football the other week, and I think it was Eric pointed out there's a player on, I think it's Georgia, Alabama, Alabama named Kool-Aid. His parents named him Kool-Aid, like the drink that you mix together. Not a sacred name, just a drink. That's what he's named after. All of us know stories of names that were like, how, how would anybody pick that name? Even my name, Jesse, most people don't see it as something sacred or special. I can't tell you how many times that name is spelled incorrectly. Like, I live the Starbucks experience. Like, you complain about Starbucks... Every card I ever, I ever get, every email, every note, almost always my name is misspelled. It's J-E-S-S-E, as in Jesse from the Bible, the father of David. To me, it's a valuable name. It comes from biblical heritage. It's my dad's name is David, so we kind of flipped it a little bit, Jesse and David. It's something special, and men who are named Jesse typically carry the the biblical version of Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, but I constantly get J-E-S-S-I-E. One time, a boss who gave me my checks every week spelled my name on a letter on an envelope, J-E-E-S-S-E, as in geese, but with a J. So I'm geese. I don't know. So today, names aren't sacred, but to them, names were your identity. Names were your label. Names were your purpose. Abraham, the father of many, uh, Sarah, like 
Adam, Eve, all these names mean something to the culture. They, they describe who they are, Jacob and Israel. Like all these names mean something. And God has revealed to his people his name. In ancient cultures and pagan cultures, people would use the names of their gods that they would create or they would believe in as a magical formula to kind of get the gods to do something on their behalf. But Israel never thought that way. Israel recognized that God's name is so sacred that he has marked them with his name. He has revealed his name to them, and it is a place of of relationship. It's a place of protection. It's a place of rescue and safety. In Second Corinthians chapter, Second uh, Chronicles chapter fourteen, we see this verse. It says, "We rest on Thee, and in Thy name we go." There's this sense of security in the name of God. We see this same idea carried over into the New Testament in multiple passages, talking about the name of Jesus, the name of the Father. In John chapter 14, we see that, it sa- that Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This isn't some kind of magical formula for us to get all of our wishes complete. This is a sacred label that we are carriers of the divine image. We know Jesus' name. We know the name that's above every other name. And now because of that, we have safety. We have his blessing. We have the authority in his name to do the works of the kingdom. Not to do the works of myself, but to do the works of his, his kingdom. That's the, the idea that's in this passage in these few verses. So they can say, praise the servants of Yahweh. Pra- praise him. De- declare his name forever. From the rising of the sun till its setting, we're praising God's name. From all times, from this time forth and forevermore, we're praising God's name. He's revealed it to us. And that's sacred and special. Keep reading in verse, cha- in verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, is high above all nations, is glory above the heavens. Who is like Yahweh, our Elohim, our God? Who is like this one that we know? There's Elohim is these different versions of gods, and, and in Scripture we'll often use it as our God. But here we see a name for our God. Who is like Yahweh, our Elohim? Who is like him? who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. We'll pause there for just a second. Our personally known God is above everything. He sees everything. This isn't him looking down as like some kind of arrogant, pompous personality looking down on us like we are worthless but this is the position of concern this is the position of interest this is the position of love and care that the god above everything who's given us his name is now looking down on humanity with interest with concern with 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 value on us he sees us he knows us he's deeply involved in our world. There's this idea of this deistic God who created things and then kind of just steps away from all of his creation and lets it just work itself out like a a clockmaker who winds a clock, who sets it, and then steps away and lets it work however it will. This is not the God of the Bible. 
the God of the Bible is intimately involved in the details of your life. Who is like the Lord, our God, who is seated on high and he looks far down on heavens and earth. We'll come back to this, this thought, the, the meaning of this in just a few minutes. Continuing in verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Let's pause for another minute. This passage reminds us that God changes broken situations. These verses here I've talked before about the Hebrew participle. It adds a continual action to it. And that participle is all throughout this passage here. But one, God is raising. He continually raises the poor from the dust. He is giving barren women a home. He changes their story. He, he flips the narrative. He changes need into provision. We have somebody who's poor and in the dust and the ash heap, and then he puts them in a place with princes. He changes the situation. This, this passage isn't a prosperity promise. That's not what this is. This isn't saying, well, I don't have enough or I don't have as much as I'd like, so if I love God more, then he will make me a prince. That's, this isn't, you know, Aladdin and the magic genie. That's not what this passage is. This verse is glorifying the God who changes situation. It's a declaration of worship for a good God who works in the miraculous. That's what this is. It's praise to the one who can do anything. He, he changes situations. Why? Because he sees our situations. He, he knows what's happening. In verse 9, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. We see in Scripture stories like Sarah and Hannah and Elizabeth. We know that in that culture, if you were a barren woman... Your husband could cast you off and sit you aside because you weren't bringing value into the community or into the home. Value came from procreating and having sons and having daughters that you could marry off in exchange for more money. It was a system of inheritance, a system of value. It was a world of increase. And if you couldn't bring increase into your house, then you were seen as less than. You were put aside and barren women were just depressed and discouraged because they couldn't contribute to their community. They couldn't have a voice as a mother as other mothers did in that society. Men, if you couldn't produce income, if you couldn't bring a crop in, if you couldn't bring wealth and provision for your family, then something was broken. In both of these passages, we see that idea, somebody sitting in the ash heap. Well, if you couldn't bring growth in your crops, then you have ash and dirt all around you, and you were hungry, your family was hungry, you were poor and desolate. And this passage reveals that we have a God that's worthy of praise, who's revealed himself, and he sees our situations, and he feeds us when we feel like we're stuck in ashes. He provides for us. He changes the story. And if we feel like we don't have a purpose in his kingdom, in his family, in his community, if we're barren and desolate, he gives us a child. He gives us a purpose. He makes her the joyous mother of children, plural, the joyous mother of 
children. He completely is able to change the situation. This is a God who sees these women, such as Sarah, Hannah, and Elizabeth, and others in the community, and he brings life. He makes them producers in the kingdom who are not cut off, not valueless. They have a place in our God. The one who reveals his name, his, his character, this is the one that we hallel, that we praise, that we worship, that we raise a hallelujah to. This passage means a lot to me. Um, my family is the result of God moving when doctors say that there's infertility or complications. Uh, my mother was not supposed to have kids, and there's two of us, and uh, not two of me. That would be weird. But me and a sister. I have a sister who's also named Jessica. So Jesse and Jessica. Not very creative there, but that's, that's who we are. Um, my wife and I had our first child was a miscarriage, and now we have three daughters. My sister uh, had a son and struggled to have another, and there was a prophetic voice in her church uh, after years of not being able to have kids who called her out and prayed over her and her husband said, you're going to conceive. And that month they conceived um, another member of my family. Like my family is the result of God saying, the barren shall produce. Those who are insecure and fearful God does the miraculous. This isn't a formula to make miracles happen. It's a testimony that God does make miracles happen. I want you to hear this. So why does it matter? Why does it matter that, that God is real and he sees us? As verse 4 says, going back to those, verse 4 and 5, the Lord is high above the nations his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who's seated on high and he looks far down? Why does it matter? This couple weeks ago, I was sitting with a couple of the guys at the church. We were playing board games in my house. I love board games. And we had some football, playoff football in the background. And a commercial just kind of caught my attention. I turned around to check out this commercial. And it was a commercial during playoff football for an atheist group just challenging us to not believe in God anymore and give their website. And at the end of the commercial, he says, check out this website, basically. And then he says, because I'm not afraid to go to hell. Not afraid to go to hell. We live in a culture that has made God this angry God that looks at humanity and, and we think we would be better off if God didn't exist because then hell wouldn't exist and that would be, we would be Okay. Everything would be perfect. It's the Beatles, like imagine there's no religion. Imagine if we could just do our thing our way. Uh, imagine if, 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 if that was the worst enemy. The atheists believe that God's, the idea of religion actually inflicts harm on humanity. And scripture actually tells us the exact opposite. That it's never about missing hell, but it's about bringing heaven into earth right now. 
The scriptures reveal this merger, this union of heaven and earth and sin and hell has polluted it. And God's design is to once again have heaven and earth collide. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he gives his disciples the ability to speak and declare and manifest heaven on the earth right now. This Psalms recognize that heaven is looking down not to bring hell but to give us hope for heaven on the earth. Why does it matter? Because if, if there is no God, if, if the only reason for our salvation or our faith is to escape this idea of hell, if that's the only purpose, then we are missing out on the hope for the now. We're missing out that this psalm is filled with, one, the testimony that God has revealed himself, but two, the testimony that God brings hope into the now. If God does not exist, then whatever broken situation you're in right now, your only hope is you or humanity. So the sick, the broken, the poor, COVID, cancer, and whatever your problem is, your only hope, if God is not good, and if God is not what this psalm says, your only hope is you or the people around you. That's not much of a hope. I mean, I love humanity, but we mess it up. This passage reminds us that our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in Yahweh, the one who looks down and he changes situations. I hope that makes sense to you this morning. If a good God doesn't exist, then you will always be broken, you will always have a need, and you will always need to rely on human ability to experience heaven. But we see a passage here that reminds us that heaven has come, and it sees us, it knows us, and it changes our story. So verse 1 began, praise the Lord. This verse 9 ends, this psalm, this song ends praise the lord it ends with a straight a straight statement of hallelujah god changes the story hallelujah praise yahweh like i said these are hallel songs they're called from 113 to 118 and you can go on youtube later on after the service i encourage you to do that and just YouTube Psalm 113 in the Hebrew. And there's a few different visu, uh, videos that popped up for me. One was somebody singing it in a much more slower, traditional Hebrew version of 113. And then there's also this massive group of men, Jewish men, standing before the Western Wall, singing these songs together. And it is a joyous, awesome celebration. It's a full-on party. There's an excitement in knowing that God reveals himself and he changes our story. There's something in us that just has to cry out, praise the Lord. If you look at those first few words of praise, they're commands in the Hebrew. They're in the form of a command telling us, you, the person beside you, praise Yahweh. Just do it. Just, just praise him. It's, and it's not because the situation's good. You can't write this psalms if you haven't experienced poverty. You can't write this psalm if you haven't experienced barrenness. You can't write this song if you don't have brokenness in your world. It's not because everything's good. It's because God sees and he changes things. He's worthy of our praise. We understand that these promises 
of seeing God and, and seeing God move and rescue, they were ultimately found in Jesus. Like I said, these are Hillel Psalms and they are traditionally, historically sung before the Passover meal. That means that most likely Jesus sang these songs prior to the Last Supper. Making them the last songs of worship that he sang before the cross. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He took the cup. He washed the disciples' feet. Even the disciple who betrayed him, that same night that he's betrayed, it's also in that night that he most likely sang these songs. He's sitting there knowing he's going to the cross and he sings, he cries out, Hallelujah! Praise the name of God forever. He's able to worship the Father. He's able to glorify the Father in that moment, knowing that God sees what's happening on the earth. God is not distant from what Jesus is going through in that moment. He is fully aware. So today I want to ask, I think today we carry the name Christians. It was originally meant as an instinct. Our worship is joyful, not because everything is the way we want it, but because God has revealed himself to us. We see him, our God who's revealed himself. Let's worship together. Thank you.